Anybody still confused about the theme for the service today? <laughs> there was a, a young newlywed preparing to cook her first traditional Jewish dinner on Rosh Hashanah and decided that she was going to prepare her family's famous brisket recipe. She began, just as she'd seen her mother and grandmother do hundreds of times before, by cutting off the ends of the roast and putting it in the oven. Her husband loved the meal, but he said, you know, that was fantastic. I just don't understand. Why did you cut the ends off of the brisket? Aren't the burnt ends the best part? His wife said, that's the way my mother always did it. It's our family tradition. A few months later at Passover, the newlyweds were having dinner with the whole family together, and the son-in-law noticed his mother-in-law cutting off the ends again of the brisket. So he asked, why do you cut off the ends? Isn't that the best part? She replied, that's the way my mother always did it. That's our family tradition. And just then, the grandma walked in the kitchen and said, that's not why I cut off the ends of the brisket. My pan was too small growing up, and I couldn't fit the whole thing. In the adventures of Tom Sawyer, Mark Twain wrote, the less there is to justify a tradition, the harder it is to get rid of it. When someone asks, why do we do that? The familiar yet interminable refrain we often hear is, that's the way we've always done it. Isn't it interesting? The most frequent justification for a tradition is an appeal to tradition. Our circular logic abounds when we argue tradition for tradition's shape. And yet this, as humorous as this phrase has now become in our culture, that's the way we've always done it, contains a profound ontological claim. What do we mean by always? Do we mean since the start of the church? Do we mean since the day we were born? Since the founding of America? Since the days of Jesus? since the dawn of time. What do we mean by always? Do we mean to suggest that traditions have no origin or start date? No matter where or when it is uttered, that's the way we've always done it is always a lie. Traditions are temporal. They come from somewhere. They're established by human beings and begin at some time and place. And we say, when we're saying those phrases, those words, that's the way we've always done it, we really usually mean, that's the way I like it. That's the way things are now. Take it or leave it. Our dramatic appeals to tradition are often attempts to maintain power and control or comfort, to defend the way things are, protect the status quo, prevent things from changing. And yet, deep down, if we're honest with ourselves, we know this is a futile endeavor. As Heraclitus said, the only constant thing in life is change. Or as Octavia Butler put it, the only lasting truth is change, God is change. Everything is evolving. Resisting change is pointless. We can only really achieve Pyrrhic victories that inflict a devastating toll on ourselves and those around us. If change is the constant fundamental principle of the universe, then, as Adrian Marie Brown claims, we must learn how to get ourselves in right relationship with change. 
preachers growing up that I heard used to say that we need to get in right relationship with God. But if God is changed, then we need to get in right relationship with change. Spiritually, emotionally, physically, it's not a matter of if change happens, but how. Are we changing intentionally or accidentally? Explicitly or implicitly? Strategically or randomly? Are we growing or shrinking, progressing or regressing, moving forever forward or being born back ceaselessly into the past? When you think about it, it's quite staggering that any Christian in history has ever used the phrase, that's the way we've always done it. Especially given how Jesus talked about tradition. In this text especially. When the scribes and Pharisees questioned Jesus, saying, why do your disciples not follow the tradition of the elders? Jesus clapped back at them with two rounds of threefold accusations, escalating his charges every time. He said, Isaiah prophesied rightly about you hypocrites. As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching human precepts as doctrines. You abandon the commandment of God and hold to human tradition. You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. You make the word of God null and void through the traditions you've handed on. And you do many things like this. Jesus accused the scribes and Pharisees of hypocrisy, blasphemy, idolatry, as well as a trinity of abandonment, rejection, and nullification of God's word. These were extremely serious charges and some of the most devastating accusations Jesus ever made. However, I suspect that for many in our church, Jesus' accusation that clinging to tradition is equivalent to abandoning, rejecting, and nullifying God's word doesn't really bother us that much, does it? We've been deconstructing and demythologizing and dethroning God's word for nearly 80 years. In our covenant, we vow to sustain a critical examination of scripture, belief, and ritual as interpreters of God's active presence in the world. Therefore, we don't really care too much about the authority of scripture. If we don't like what we hear in the Bible, or if we don't like what Jesus says, we may tell him and the preacher to go take a hike. We're Baptists, for God's sake. We believe in soul liberty, liberty of conscience, freedom of pulpit, and especially of pew. Who is Jesus to tell us what to believe, how to act, what to do with our traditions? How dare he get messed up in church business? And yet I fear there's a deeper indictment in this text that may be harder for us to shake. Good progressive Christians may be able to play loosely with the demands of Scripture but not with our hearts. How could Jesus say something so callous about our hearts? Surely he wasn't talking to us good progressive folks. We're all heart, for God's sake. We're the bleeding hearts, for God's sake. What do you mean our hearts are far from God? What do you mean to say our hearts might be in the wrong place? How dare you? Like the scribes and Pharisees, 
Jesus presents us with an ultimatum, God or tradition. It's not a pleasant one. Do we love God or do we love our traditions? It's fascinating here. Jesus did not phrase this question as a priority or balance issue, saying, do you love God more than tradition? No, according to Jesus, tradition is a lot like wealth. And he clearly stated, no one can serve two masters. You will either hate one and love the other or be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot love both God and money. Greed, one of those great American traditions. And yet, like greed, the love of any tradition, Jesus says, is a force so powerful it can take mastery over our hearts, alienating our hearts from God and other people, putting our hearts in the wrong place. John Calvin famously said, the human heart is a perpetual factory of idols. By this he meant our hearts are an assembly mind constantly churning out many gods who are vying for power and mastery over our souls. I don't know about you, but that's a terrifying image. It's going to haunt my dreams. And yet the heart is also something else, a factory of goodness, of love and life, constantly pumping out new desires and new mercies every morning. Jewish theologians teach us, beyond what Calvin ever said, that within us, within every human heart, there resides an inclination toward good and an inclination toward evil. Yetzer Hatov and a Yetzer Hara, which means we're all engaged, even in our own hearts, in a constant struggle against our propensity for evil, and we must strive to cultivate that propensity for goodness and love consistently, regularly. Jesus was trying to communicate that the love of tradition is not a neutral or impartial human phenomenon, but a force that accelerates our propensity toward evil. James Baldwin feared that what causes us to fall in love with tradition is fear. In the fire next time he wrote, perhaps this is the whole root of our human trouble that we will sacrifice the beauty of our lives to imprison ourselves in totems and taboos, crosses, blood sacrifices, steeples, mosques, races, armies, flags, nations, in order to deny the fact of death, which, he says, is the only fact we have. Jesus' blistering critique of the scribes and Pharisees is important, not because he was undermining the word of God or subverting the commandments, but because he was purifying and intensifying it, seeking to liberate God's word from all of the totems and taboos and traditions that were unnecessarily sacrificing the beauty of their lives. Baldwin goes on to say, more pointedly, whoever wishes to become a truly moral human being must first divorce themselves of all of the prohibitions, crimes, and hypocrisies of the Christian church. If the concept of God has any validity or use, it can only be to make us larger, freer, and more loving. And if God cannot do this, then it's time we got rid of him. One of the traditions the scribes and Pharisees loved the most was a tradition called Corban. A word you heard in the text, it means, at its root, a sacrificial offering to God, a vow. However, Jesus challenged this tradition because it had become a loophole. 
that the scribes and Pharisees were using to shirk their obligations to the elderly in their community. In those days, the oldest son was obligated to care for their parents, which often required, as many of you know, significant financial resources later in life. There was no social security safety net in first century Judea. And the biblical command to honor your mother and father meant providing for them in their later years. That's how the elderly survived. But Corbin, Corbin allowed a person to make a vow to give all of their assets to the temple when they die, essentially willing their state to the treasury. Yet by making Corbin this vow to the temple, the scribes and Pharisees had a quid pro quo situation where they nullified the person's obligation to provide financial support for their parents. And here's the kicker. Even after the vow, they were allowed to retain control of the assets until their death. Now, I don't want the stewardship committee to get any ideas here. The Corbin tradition was a heartless act of disrespect and negligence toward the elderly. Jesus claimed the tradition literally nullifies the biblical obligation to honor one's parents. And yet even more slimy, Corbin vows were made to seem like a person was giving an honorable religious gesture when in fact they were abdicating their financial responsibilities. The scribes were capitalizing on family distress when an older son would get out of sorts with their parents. The temple leaders would jump in, offering a convenient solution that nullified the family obligation to fill their coffers. It was unquestionably elder abuse, which is why later in Mark 12, Jesus said, beware of the scribes who devour widows' houses and say long prayers for the sake of appearances. He was lambasting the scribal class for hiding economic exploitation of the elderly behind public religious piety. A few weeks ago, I met with a group of senior adults in our congregation and had a fantastic conversation about the ways that COVID-19 had impacted all of our lives over the last 18 months. Afterwards, a woman sent me a very kind note to thank me for my visit. And it reminded me a lot of a note that I read Elizabeth Dowd once set, sent to Gene Owens many years ago. In the note, she said, Ben, in your soul, I can tell it is clear you feel for marginalized people. But please remember, not all marginalized people have skin of another color or are of a different nationality. Some of us are marginalized simply because we are of an older age. She's 100% right. Very little has changed between the first century and today. Many American Christians still try to abdicate our religious responsibilities to the elderly. Corbin is similar to many loopholes we use personally and corporately, trying to avoid paying taxes which would fund care for the elderly like Social Security and Disability and Medicaid. Last year, Louise Aaron wrote an article in The Atlantic entitled, Ageism is Making the Pandemic Worse, and claimed that disregard for the elderly that is woven into American culture is now hurting everyone. Conservative estimates now say that over 600,000 people have died in America as a result of COVID-19. However, 80% of COVID deaths have been people 65 and older. 95% people 50 and older. 
Americans who continue to refuse to wear masks in public spaces are often putting the elderly at more risk than anyone else. For those who survive the disease, we know that many will suffer under the burden of medical debt for the rest of their lives. Medical debt now outweighs all other personal debt in America, which is a major factor of why 45% of Americans over 65 have trouble meeting their basic needs. But it doesn't have to be that way, does it? In the 38 states where they passed Medicaid expansion, medical debt has been cut in half. Unfortunately, here in North Carolina and the other 11 states where they didn't pass Medicaid expansion, medical debt remains as high as ever. And to make matters worse, a National Bureau of Economic Research working paper from 2019 concluded that states refusing to expand Medicaid has now led to more than 15,000 deaths in a single year that otherwise would not have occurred. Our society may be more advanced than the first century world, but we have our own ways of calling it Corbin shrinking from our obligations, abdicating responsibility to the elderly and the vulnerable. Yet Corbin was just one example of a tradition Jesus used to illustrate the problem to the Pharisees and scribes and defend his disciples' practice of not observing the tradition of the elders. The disciples weren't just looking for laissez-faire ways of dealing with tradition, circling it. There was a much larger issue at stake for them, the issue of ethnic and religious inclusivity. The reason the scribes and Pharisees accused Jesus and his disciples of eating with defiled hands is because they were regularly breaking bread with Gentiles, eating with tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners. That's why he told them in the strongest words, don't you see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile? It's what comes out of a person that defiles. Therefore, he declared all foods clean. That was a radical declaration of inclusivity. The tradition of the elders was an exclusive religious order of honor and shame, clean and unclean, defiled and undefiled, that exploited and marginalized the poor and the sick and the vulnerable and the elderly. And Jesus challenged this tradition because it was standing directly in opposition to the new community he was building, a community where he was hoping there would be no hierarchy of human value, where all people would be included and empowered to practice the radical demands of scripture and care for the welfare of the weakest and vulnerable members of society. Jesus and his disciples were creating a new humanity and a new kingdom where there would be no, neither Jew nor Greek, nor male nor female, slave or free, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian or Scythian, clean or unclean, honored or shamed, defiled or undefiled, an intergenerational, inter-ethnic, multicultural gathering of people from all walks of life who all believed wholeheartedly that the Spirit had been poured out on all flesh a community where sons and daughters prophesy, where old folks still dream dreams and young folks see visions, where even men and women who've been subjugated by society are welcome to receive and proclaim the power of God. They were trying to be people with their hearts in the right place, people whose hearts were with God and with the people who have God's heart, the vulnerable the marginalized, the broken, the beaten, and the damned. And they would not let any tradition stand in the way of welcoming people into this profound community. And neither should we. 
In her extraordinary book, Lose Your Mother, Sadia Hartman wrote, every generation confronts the task of choosing its past. Inheritances are chosen as much as they are passed on. The past depends less on what happened then than on the desires and discontents of the present. What we recall has as much to do with the terrible things we hope to avoid as with the good life for which we yearn. But when does one decide to stop looking to the past and instead conceive of a new order? When is it time to dream of another country or to embrace other strangers as allies? When is it clear that the old life is over, a new one has begun, and there's no looking back? There's no looking back. The Spirit has come, God has come, change has come. And we must conceive of a new order, dream of a new way. That is why we have and must continue to commit ourselves to building the same kind of inclusive community that Jesus and his disciples created right here and now in this place. In order to do that, though, we will have to reckon with the fact that Jesus believed the love of tradition was not only a nullification of God's word, but the enemy of an inclusive community. Saying this is the way we've always done it is not going to cut it anymore. The only thing constant is change, and we're going to have to get in right relationship to it. If our mission and vision is to be an inclusive community, then we must take an inventory of our hearts, first and foremost. Peer deep inside that perpetual factory of idols, that garden of new loves, and ask ourselves some very tough questions. What do we truly love about church, about God? Are our hearts in the right place? Do we love God or do we love our traditions? These are not easy to answer. I understand that. But there is always good news embedded in tough questions. Truly good news. And the good news here is that if we can get our hearts in the right place and get in right relationship with change, just imagine how much better our community will taste. How many more will be able to fit around the table? How much more we'll have to go around as we share together? when we stop cutting off the ends. Amen. <laughs>